and welcome to our weekly ICT4D conference podcast. My name is Sonia Ritzel from CRS and I'm interviewing experts for you to talk about digital development trends, innovations and good practice. Today it's my pleasure to talk to Bobby Jefferson at DAI Global. Bobby, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, thank you, Sonia. So I'm Bobby Jefferson, Chief Technology Officer for DAI Oberhof. And my background is digital health technology, supply chain, and lab information systems around digital health. And as part of a podcast series, I'm speaking to CIOs and CTOs about digital transformation. So Bobby, I would like to hear from you your insights on digital transformation and health, particularly how it has been impacted through the COVID pandemic. And I understand you have done some work in digital and cyber secure connections for staff, employees, and connecting to other resources. If you'd like to tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, I'd be happy to. So the digital transformation that has occurred due to COVID has been very dramatic this year. We've seen a lot of attention paid to remote working, staff working remotely, employees, consultants in the field. And I currently have a Haiti project that's supporting COVID, and many of them are also working remotely. So this has been a, a sincere transformation led by digital and due to the impact of, of COVID. And so as people and organizations, you know, international development organizations and NGOs and small civil society organizations all go to work from home or digital remote learning and working, attention needs to be paid to making sure that they're cyber secure. Uh, recently, the WHO website was, was hacked and, and the emails coming from the WHO were, were not trusted. We've seen emphasis on trying to penetrate healthcare clinics and hospitals, especially those working on the COVID vaccine. So there's just this increase and in the focus by hackers and others on uh, healthcare and clinic systems. So we have been working on uh, uh, cybersecurity for healthcare to, to help secure not just our staff and employees, but our really important patient and privacy information that's connected to the hospitals and to the clinic. Thank you. And um, what other trends are you seeing with regards to digital transformation in the health sector? Obviously, um, cybersecurity is important, but I assume we also see an intake of emerging technologies and with a higher focus on digital technologies these days. Yes, that's correct. So we're seeing uh, the uptake in telemedicine, so where, you're, where many people are having virtual appointments with their pediatrician, with the general practitioner, with the doctors. And so this is a great way to at least have a, a patient clinic uh, interaction um, using you know, the internet and the mobile phone. And then this other big trend is the Uberization. I call it the Uberization of healthcare. And what that means is where instead of going to the pharmacy to stand in line, instead of going to the clinic to have your, your blood test or even a COVID test, uh, now, a lot of those services are coming to you that you can order at home or you can deliver to you pharmacy meds and you can use your mobile phone to do your own vital signs and pulse oximeters. So this advent, you know, because of COVID and the transformation allows opportunities where your health care can be in your hands and in your family's hands and at home. 
So for medical diagnostics, for doing just, you know, your own COVID tests at home. And importantly, there's now solid regulation that allows this to happen, both by the EU and by the FDA. Excellent. Do we see those trends globally as well? I mean, do we see an uptake also on telemedicine in on other continents? Yes, we, we are seeing tremendous use of telemedicine, for example, in like Indonesia, which has, you know, 300 million people and 25,000 islands and very decentralized. And in order to get to a, a clinic or a hospital, you, you have to walk and potentially take a, a boat as, as well. So we're seeing huge uptakes, especially in Southeast Asia, Cambodia, where there's a lot of flooding that's happening now today. They have a floating hospital, a floating clinic, and that goes down and, and meets all the different patients on the water or on the river. And so in order to provide telemedicine services. Uh, so we're, we're seeing a huge, huge uptake in being able to provide services, bring services to people, and, and to deliver those. But these, these services are also under the regulation of what U.S. FDA calls the 510K. So, you know, many people are familiar with the FDA. They help regulate, you know, drugs, medicine. And now they've achieved that you can have your software, your mobile phone, and your algorithm, all three together, that can be submitted for FDA approval as a medical device. So what that means is, especially if you're working in Africa, you're working in Zambia, Kenya, and you've got a great solution that, you know, you do mobile phone screening for women or mobile phone screening for children in a clinic or a hospital. The phone, the solution, and now the AI algorithm all together can be a medical, an approved medical device, just like, you know, other medical and laboratory devices. So this is a tremendous opportunity for those who are working in Southeast Asia, for Africa, I'm helping to support in Kenya, the, these companies that have these devices, because now this also opens up the US market and the EU market as well. So, you know, the, the, the COVID has given opportunities now that weren't there before. So I'm very excited about this transformation where innovation is coming from Africa, from the global South, potentially into the US and potentially into the EU as well that that opportunity is now there. Oh, that's excellent. That's a huge step, having medical devices being so inclusive now. You mentioned AI as a medical device. So we also see very much um, an increase of AI and machine learning and automation of services from chatbots to, I guess, more, more sophisticated um, mm -hmm. AI solutions. And is that something you also like to comment on? Yes. So thank you for that. So definitely a supporter of, you know, using artificial intelligence, machine learning as solutions, for example, for searching for, for breast cancer patients, cervical cancer patients, for, you know, retinal scans, searching images and being able to detect and provide a recommendations around diagnosis. So I think that's a, a strong use case. But I'm also, you know, very conscious around the bias that both ML and AI have, that they're only good as the algorithms of the people and the, and the test. So, you know, th there's the use case of often people using um, AI to do, for example, job matching, right? So a lot of CVs are coming in and, and people put CVs, of course, in different formats. And now you want to make sure they match people with jobs. So there have been a number of AI tools that have learned 
unfortunately have learned to, to only match women into gender specific jobs. It was because that's how the, the machine was learning in the beginning. And so there's this definite bias that I'm trying to uh, highlight. And there's a number of studies also around the different types of facial recognition based on skin color and, and false positives. So I'm, I'm very much you know, a proponent or advocate that the AI and the ML tool needs to be transparent. Right now, it's a black box. It makes decisions. You know, whether that's recognition around a cancer polyp or a mixed uh, recognition around who you are in terms of your face. But we don't have insight into that black box of why you made that decision or what kind of test case did it use. So I'm being very you know, much an advocate of, of trying to have much more transparency and not just allow the doctors, the clinicians, the patients to, to hand over completely the clinical diagnostics to the AI, there still needs to be a human intervention or at least some test case that shows that it's not biased. Because today there is bias, both gender, racial bias, as introduced to a number of the AI and, and ML systems. Part of it is because they have a limited data set, right? That if you use the data set from the UK or from the EU or from the US, you know, for longitudinal records, whereas, you know, I try to help them to have access to, you know, patient data or undergoing cancer treatments from Zambia or from Kenya. So they can have a rich variety and diversity of data sets. So that way they now can demonstrate and show that their algorithm actually works. But so right now there's a, a number of initiatives that are ongoing around that. Within DAI, uh, we've given webinars, we've uh, given articles on LinkedIn. So we're, we're continuing to push this envelope around transparency, openness, and reducing bias in AI and ML tools. Thank you. Yes, as you said, AI is, um, or any technology is really just as good as the people using it, and also in this case, the data we're feeding to it. If I can give a, a, a shout out, a, a huge plus to Sonia and the CRS team, it was three years ago in Zambia, where the, the, actually at the ICT for D CRS conference, one of the plenary sessions was on the bias of AI tools. And so, you know, you actually have been ahead, two or three years ahead of where we are today. So I just want to thank you for that as well. Thank you so much. That's really kind. So my last question for you, Bobby, is around the digital strategy. As we said, um, obviously, the technologies are there and uh, we're seeing now a bigger use of those technologies also in the NGO and international development community. But how do you see that influencing our digital strategies or our priorities? What do you see as trends, either with your partners' organizations or within DAI Global? Great, thank you. So uh, USAID has published its digital strategy. Um, DFID, which F FCDO, has also published its digital strategy. So those who are implementing partners or working with donors, even Global Fund and others, they have a, they're all, everyone, you know, WHO, each of them are, are embracing digital and digital transformation. So what's needed then, and not just in health, across agriculture, education, and as you've heard from the other podcasts um, as well. So the, the question then becomes, how do you then make decisions, strategic decisions, around investments in digital. If you're an NGO or you're a partner community, who is that person within the organization? 
And so what I try to help mentor some of the groups is to think about having a chief technology officer or digital officer at the executive level within the organization. So and what that will then help you think about is not just what your digital strategy is, but how to retain staff, how to have a career for digital individuals, how to apply digital internally, whether or not you're working on grants, whether or not you're, you're managing staff, just doing simple things like signing documents together, you know, electronically. And then of the outward facing one, how are you helping patients and community and, and frontline health workers as well? So, you know, for me, this is, it's hugely important for many NGO groups and, and national development community to, to really have within the group at the executive level, not just at the project level, executive level, a person who's thinking about your digital strategy because COVID isn't going away tomorrow or next week. And as we said, this digital uh, COVID has helped accelerate the digital transformation. So, so now having both the CEO and the chief technology officer and the, the board really think through a strategy for what does that mean for the next two to three years um, is, is hugely important. It can make a huge difference for those organizations to survive and thrive as we go forward. Thank you. That's an excellent point. Definitely for the digital team, not just to provide services, but assist with the decision making and the, the strategy and also the innovations going forward. I like it. It's a point we've been making in the tech sector, at least at conferences for over a decade, to put the um, CIOs and CTOs on the board. And yeah, I'm hoping that the current general transformation might support this. I wanted to have a follow-up question with you and see what do you think the future might hold? So I think the future holds promise for using the skills that we have in country. So what we've learned is I don't need to come to the office in order to have a meeting or make a decision. That I can, you know, use the staff I have in the country, whether or not it's Nigeria or Rwanda or Kenya, I can use their brain power because I'm connected digitally, that I can leverage people in Indonesia and Afghanistan and have them part of the process because, you know, we're all working from home and that now has an opportunity to, to give voice and allow them to also be at the table. So I, I think this emphasis on using our local staff and our communities, the local community much more, I think, is something that is a promise as well. Other part to that, though, is security. So as we get more people connected, there's more opportunities for hackers and others. So at the same time, the, the cybersecurity part from end to end needs to be built in, protect the patients, protect the clinics, to protect the staff, and, and to have these healthy behaviors so that way we can, you know, work together, we can share information, but we can do it in a safe and secure environment. Because there are many, many hackers and, and others that are always trying to get into our systems, disrupt, or even just simply hold clinics and hospitals for, from ransomware. You know, so I, I think there's going to be a dual edge of the promise and the protection uh, as well. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I love how you how we're circling back to the importance of the um, information security, which was your first point. Thank you so much for sharing your insights. 
Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed this. I appreciate the opportunity to, to share a few things. Thank you. <laughs>